Hey everyone, before I start the show, I wanted to let you know about some events we'll be attending this year. On June 10th and 11th, we'll be in London, England attending CrimeCon UK. And then on September 22nd to the 24th, we'll be in Orlando, Florida attending CrimeCon in the US. This is an event we look forward to every year. It's literally the ultimate true crime event. We'll provide links in the episode notes to each event. And don't forget to quote madness to claim your discount. So mark your calendars. London, England on June 10th and 11th in Orlando, Florida, September 22nd and 24th. We hope to see you there. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever considered selling off everything you own? Buying a camper and hitting the road? Traveling around, finding work where you can? And living a minimalist nomadic lifestyle? It's certainly not for everyone, but it's a romanticized idea of freedom that's inspired many. For a man named Robert Haney, it was an appealing sounding lifestyle after all his children had grown up and moved out of the house. So in 2012, he decided to make a change and packed up his handyman tools into a camper and headed out into the Oregon countryside looking for work. Eventually, Robert found a job that seemed perfect, working on a pig farm in the beautiful Siskiyou Mountains. But there was no way Robert could have known that the woman who'd hired him was harboring a dark secret, one that would soon come to light in the most gruesome of ways. Join me now as we take a look into the twisted tale of Susan Monica. You'll hear a case so bizarre and heinous that it might make you cancel that side order of bacon. Every year on New Year's Day, people around the world make resolutions to spark positive changes in their life, saving money, losing weight, or improving relationships with loved ones. For the Haney family in Medford, Oregon, New Year's Day in 2014 brought about a different kind of resolution. The five adult children of Robert Haney decided they needed to speak with their father. But this wasn't some grand act of forgiveness or mending fences after a family feud. It was much more simple than that. None of his children had heard a word from their father in more than two months, and they began to get worried all the Haney siblings were aware that Robert had been going through a particularly tough time lately, the result of a somewhat downward spiral that had begun over a decade earlier, maybe even before that. 56-year-old Robert Haney was born in 1957, and growing up, was always considered a bit of a loner, and perhaps because of this, was often the target of bullies. Eventually, Robert dropped out of high school altogether and ran away from home with his brother. Together, they worked for a while, picking up odd jobs here and there, mostly in construction. And over time, Robert became a skillful builder and a general jack-of-all-trades. In the 1980s, Robert got married and he and his wife raised five children together. But things were never easy. Money was always in short supply despite how hard and how long Robert worked. Eventually, tensions grew in the marriage and the couple divorced in 2003. After the divorce, four of the five Haney children chose to live with their father. Though Robert struggled with an addiction to alcohol, he always managed to provide for his children, and it was only after his kids had all moved out that Robert's addiction worsened and the wanderlust he'd experienced when he was younger returned. So in 2012, Robert decided to go back to his roots, 
to live a simple life traveling around, living off wages from small jobs. He traded in his house for a camper and dog and set off on his own. After traveling around for the better part of a year, doing odd jobs here and there, Robert found an ad for a job on Craigslist. A rural pig farmer was looking for a handyman, someone who could help out with odd jobs around the farm, but also to help build a home on the property. It was an opportunity that piqued his interest. What better place for a jack-of-all-trades who was also looking for a bit of social isolation than a farm in rural Oregon? After reaching out to the farmer, Robert was hired. In exchange for his labor, Robert received a small monthly income. But most importantly, he was allowed to live on the property in his camper for free. Throughout the entire time, Robert had been living a transient lifestyle. He'd always made an effort to keep in touch with his children, calling in regularly and letting them know where they could find him. They'd known about his new job at the pig farm and stayed in contact with him all the way up until September 2013, about two months after he landed the job. And then suddenly, it all stopped. Granted, temporary gaps in communication with their father wasn't that uncommon. He didn't have a cell phone and was often off the grid. But after Christmas had come and gone, still without any word from Robert, his kids began wondering why he was giving them the silent treatment, especially over the holidays. It just didn't make sense. So on New Year's Day 2014, the Haney children took matters into their own hands and made the hour-long journey to the place their father had been calling home for the past six months, a 20-acre pig farm in Weimar, Oregon. Nestled amidst the beautiful and rugged terrain of the Siskiyou Mountains, Weimar offers truly breathtaking views along its hiking trails and numerous outdoor recreational opportunities. With a population of less than 700, it's the blink or you'll miss it kind of community where you can truly escape the hustle and bustle of everyday life. It was exactly the kind of place Robert Haney must have had in mind when he set out in his camper in search of adventure and opportunity. But when Robert finally set eyes on the place he'd soon be calling home, he almost certainly would have been disappointed because the farm was a junkyard. Six months later, when his children drove out to the farm to look for him, they too discovered the same off-putting scene and were immediately shocked by the sad state of the place. Driving up the winding ribbon of a dirt road and onto the property where their dad had been living, it wasn't the idyllic pastoral scene one might expect. The Haney family wasn't met with a red barn and spinning weather vane or rolling hills filled with cows and horses twitching their tails to keep the flies away. No, instead, the farm had the look of an abandoned compound. The barn was ugly, industrial, and only half-built, and the inside was worse, reflecting a hoarder's worst compulsions. Empty, dusty bottles filled the shelves. Towers of things that should have been thrown out long ago seemed to hold up the walls. The land itself was still raw and undeveloped. Animals wandered freely, and an awful stench hung in the air. The smell of decay. There was just something unsettling about the place. It was quiet, too quiet. Only the snuffling sounds of pigs and the pitched crows of roosters broke the eerie silence. The sheep looked hungry and neglected, and the chickens scrambled around, scratching at the dirt. There was minimal access to running water, no bathroom, and the only electricity was from solar panels. Scraps of metal stuck out of the earth like corrugated tombstones, like scattered threats of where a visitor might end up if they stayed too long. Garbage was piled up and long deserted cars were nearly disguised by overgrown grass. The filth of the place was disturbing as if it were the physical manifestation of a disordered mind. But even more disturbing was the woman who owned the place, 65-year-old Susan Monica. When the Haney's pulled up to the property, Susan Monica came out to meet them. A tall, 
imposing, gruff-looking woman. Someone who'd spent a lot of time outside without sunscreen and didn't fuss with her appearance. The Haney's asked Susan where their father was, but much to their surprise, she told them he wasn't there. According to Susan, Robert had suddenly left back in September without explanation. Just before leaving, Susan said he'd given her some money to watch his dog while he was gone, implying he'd come back soon, but he never did. Susan hadn't heard from him since. That's all she knew, adding that he'd been drinking heavily before he left, as if that statement alone might provide enough of an explanation as to what had happened to Robert. The Hannies already knew this much to be true. Around this same time Robert had moved to the farm, another relative of the Haney family had been the victim of a disturbing assault. The news had shaken Robert to the core, and it took a bit of a toll on his mental health. He'd grown increasingly depressed over the matter, and his alcohol use increased. But instead of showing any ounce of concern or sympathy, Susan quickly turned surly and acted irritated with the Haney's for showing up unannounced. She began demanding the siblings take all their father's possessions with them when they left and to get them off of her property. The dog, the camper, and anything else he may have left behind. Upon realizing their father had left practically everything he owned behind on the farm, the children became suspicious that something was seriously wrong. First, they knew their father would never leave his dog behind, not in a million years. Then there was his camper, which at this point was his only home. Considering Robert could have taken it with him wherever he wanted to go, what reason could there be for him leaving it behind? But it was when the Haney's looked inside the camper, their suspicions grew even darker. Every single tool that Robert owned was still inside the camper. As a handyman, those tools were the most important possessions he owned. They were his entire livelihood. How was he getting by without them for the past few months? It would be like a photographer leaving his camera behind, or a painter abandoning their brushes. None of what the siblings were seeing made any sense. The only explanation that seemed plausible was that something horrible and unexpected must have happened to their father. After leaving the farm, the Haney kids immediately went to police to report their father missing. Naturally, police began their investigation into Robert's disappearance by going back to Susan Monica's pig farm. When police questioned Susan, she told them the same thing she told the Haney kids. Robert had just left, suddenly out of the blue. She also corroborated some of the things the Haney's had already told police. That Robert had been drinking a lot and acting erratically, a lot of it due to hearing the news of a family member being sexually assaulted. But according to Susan, Robert hadn't only been saddened and depressed by the news. Instead, she claimed, he'd been enraged by it, and he'd become vocally hell-bent on getting revenge against the perpetrators. She suggested that perhaps Robert had left the farm in order to carry out some form of vigilante justice. And then she gave her own theory as to why he never came back. Maybe things hadn't worked out the way Robert had hoped. That was when I first kind of thought in the back of my head somewhere that if he indeed went to take care of business, you know, with the rape thing, that he might have gotten the short end of the stick. And that was, like I said, just the back of my head. I had no idea. Police knew that finding Robert was going to be a tricky task because of his transient lifestyle. One of the things that made it particularly challenging was the fact Robert pretty much only ever used cash. No way to track his movement through credit or debit cards. But then they realized they may just have a way to track him when they learned Robert was using something called an Oregon Trail Snap Card. An Oregon Trail Card is a food benefit card, like food stamps, helping low-income individuals purchase the basic necessities of life. It works almost just like a debit card and the transactions are all recorded. Following the lead, 
Detectives discovered that Robert's Oregon trail card had been used at a local Walmart as recently as December, about two months after his last reported sighting. Investigators rushed over to the Walmart and pulled their surveillance footage from December, hoping to catch a glimpse of Robert in the checkout line. But when they watched the tape, they were in for a surprise. Instead of seeing Robert using his trail card, they saw Susan using it. This alone was enough evidence to charge Susan Monica with fraud and identity theft, but more importantly, it was enough to secure a warrant and return to her farm to search her property for any other indications of identity fraud. On January 10th, police were back at Susan's pig farm, warrant in hand. A police sergeant wearing a body cam walked around the property, capturing the squalid living conditions for both people and animals. Monica sold her pork locally, marketing it as organic and pasture-raised, but it was immediately clear that Susan Monica was guilty of more than a few code violations, from improperly disposed waste to a non-working sewage system. It certainly wasn't the kind of place most people imagine when shelling out the extra cash to buy ethically raised organic meat. As the sergeant continued walking around the property, he noticed a recently dug up area just beyond the pig pen, an area Susan claimed to have been dug up to build a new pond. But when the sergeant got closer, he made a grisly discovery, a severed human leg. Suddenly, detectives had a lot more questions for Susan Monica. Decades before Susan Monica made the decision to become a pig farmer, She'd served in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War, but it wasn't some sense of civic or patriotic duty that inspired her to sign up. There was an even deeper personal motivation. Born in California in 1948, Susan's birth certificate said male, but since her childhood, she struggled with a secret. She always felt female and related to being a woman as she grew into adulthood. Andrew Dodge, host of the true crime podcasts, Unforbidden Truth and Murderabilia Exposed, interviewed Susan Monica in 2022. And here's what she had to say about that time in her life. And I joined the Navy, and I was uh, somewhat convinced that if I joined the Navy, it would make a man out of me. And then uh, being in the Navy, everybody on ship, with the exception of me, I guess, would um, get off the ship, look to the nearest bar and the nearest uh, brothel, or, and uh, I would go out and uh, just walk around, see the sights, do some little shopping here and there. After serving in the Navy for three years and seven months, Susan was honorably discharged from the Navy. But while she sat in an office, while an officer filled out her paperwork, she picked up a magazine. I was looking at a magazine, and uh, I saw in the magazine this article about Christine Jorgensen. I just had the surgery. And uh, I think I read the article about four or five times, and uh, I said that was me. I got back to home, which was uh, in San Francisco, and uh, I saw the doctor that had been mentioned in the article. And uh, after uh, about an hour, I guess, I don't know, after a little while anyway, he went ahead and started me on hormones. And then a uh, uh, couple years later, I got the money up and had the surgery. I saw this uh, psychiatrist and doctor, and I started the, uh, I started the process. And uh, as I felt very secure with myself, I told my father, I think it was $4,000, it might have been 3000 but it was either three or 4000 uh, I had asked my father for, and uh, he, he gave me the money, and I told him to uh, go ahead and uh, give the, uh, uh, the house and everything else to my brother. After transitioning, she then pursued a successful career as an engineer in San Francisco. Anyway, I'm... Uh, after the surgery and moved down to Los Angeles, I started working as a uh, civil engineer for the city of Compton. I had uh, one guy I had gone out on a couple of dates with. He told me about uh, a job opening. So uh, I put in an application and I went down and took the, took the uh, engineer's test. And uh, that was kind of funny too because 
The first time I took the test, I was the only one that passed. But in 1991, Susan decided she wanted to be closer to nature and opted for a quieter off-the-grid lifestyle. I was working down in uh, Rich Richmond, California again, and uh, I decided I wanted a piece of land, so I, uh, I just started driving. I got up here to Oregon, and uh, I could buy a 20 acres of land for the same price that I could buy a parking lot in San Francisco. So I bought 20 acres. I started a construction company, and uh, I was doing pretty good. I got the, um, a lot of jobs for homeowners. It was tough going from the get-go. She immediately got to work, clearing trees and purchasing livestock, while also running a side business called White Queen Construction. Susan often hired people in the community to build wrought iron fences which were highly regarded. She even crafted one for the local fire department. But all in all, Susan mostly tried to keep to herself in happy isolation on her off-the-grid pig farm. But now the detectives had discovered a human leg bone on her property, her days of being left alone had come to an end. To detectives, finding the leg bone was an obvious sign they were dealing with foul play. Now, of course, they still needed to send the bones into the lab for testing, but when you come across unexplained human bones during a missing persons investigation, it's not hard to do the math. They were fairly confident they'd found the lake belonging to Robert. At the exact time the bone was discovered, another officer was speaking to Susan on her farm. But instead of revealing to her they'd found the bone, they decided to play it cool and keep their cards close to the vest. Wanting to get Susan off her property so they could continue their search, they invited her down to the police station for a formal interview, making it seem like a casual request. Once at the police station, Susan put on a masterclass of what not to do during a police interrogation. First, the interrogation started off on a fairly unpleasant note for anyone involved because just before detectives walked into the room, Susan had a bit of an accident. Oh, shit. You don't want the sandwich? Not at the moment. All right. And I don't want my pants either, but since I shit in my pants, without being able to wipe my ass here. In case you didn't catch it, Susan Monica basically admits to soiling her pants before the detective walked in. Seemingly undeterred, he completely ignored the embarrassing situation and immediately starts into his interview. He began, at Susan's request, by reading the details of the search warrant out loud. Earlier back on the farm, she noticed a small error on the warrant and believed she could weasel her way out of the interrogation by pointing it out. And the lot number indicates you as the sole owner since 1999. And there you go. Say that again. The sole owner since 1999. Okay. Uh, we're done. That warrant is inaccurate. It was just a small clerical error. Susan had owned the property since 1991, not 1999. But of course, she wasn't going to get away that easily. The detective quickly steered the conversation away from the warrant and began asking her about Robert's Oregon Trail snap card. He wanted to know why on earth someone else would be using Robert's card. And for this, Susan had an explanation that seemed reasonable. I saw him. I said, I'm going into town. Do you want anything? He gave me the card, gave me the pin number, and I said, get me some beer and coffee. I got the coffee at either Walmart or grocery outlet and the beer at... Uh, so with the Oregon Trail, so you said this one time, um, the first time, was, was about three and a half months ago when he first, about that? About. I, and so it was for beer and coffee, you went to a couple different stores, yeah. you said. And then you mentioned that there was another time after that, that he asked you to do, get something. Well, it was a couple of times. A couple of times. times. Yeah. Okay. And so did this whole time, I mean, when you would go buy something at the store, did you come back with the stuff and give him his card back? Or did you hold on to the card? Or how'd that work? Um, 
I guess the first time I gave him his card back, and then after that he just said, keep it. Because you were going to run errands for Yeah. yeah. Okay. Susan's explanation seemed innocent enough, but the detective had already noticed a major flaw in her explanation. So you can't buy beer with Oregon Trail card, so did you? Did you use your own money, or how did that work? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then how did he reimburse you? Well, he did. Well, I mean, he he didn't, but he did with, you know, using using his card to buy some extra food for me. Okay, what would, he, what would you normally ask him to buy you for reimbursement? Bread and milk, that was it. Okay. Uh, occasionally cheese. Okay. If you were listening carefully, you might have noticed that the detective had very graciously given Susan an out from her predicament regarding the beer purchases on the Oregon Trail card. By suggesting to Susan that she and Robert had worked out some form of reimbursement system, all Susan had to do was agree with the detective's suggestion. This prevented the interrogation from becoming too confrontational before the detective wanted it to. Because at this point, he still wanted Susan to believe they were concerned about identity fraud and a missing person, not murder. The detective pressed Susan on what her relationship with Robert had been like, but Susan claimed she barely interacted with him and that they both minded their own business as they completed their daily tasks. Robert was mostly focused on building Susan's house, while Susan fed the animals and worked on other tasks like clearing land. I mean, I wouldn't see him for a week at a time. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he would come up in the morning, make some coffee. Yeah. And in the evening, he would come up and make some coffee and watch TV for a while. Okay. And the rest of the time, he was down in this little camper thing. Yeah. And then he would go ahead and do his scrap metal thing where he was making a couple dollars. Yeah. And, uh, um, that was about it. I didn't have a whole, you know, yeah. I, I just don't do good with people. Yeah, no, I understand that. The detective also learned that Susan had a history of hiring transient men to work on her property for minimum wage and a place to live. The same deal she'd given Robert. What she didn't know at the time was that another ex-employee of hers, Michael Bales, was being interviewed in another room at the very same time. But Michael was presenting a very different picture of Susan and Robert's interactions, telling investigators that Susan often screamed at Robert for not working hard enough. So, Robert lived down in the barn and the downstairs? No, Robert originally lived downstairs. Okay. And then he got tired of her screaming at him, so he moved his trailer's way... Right, I saw that. Okay. Way over there. Okay. And then he got tired of her screaming at For the better part of an hour, the detective spoke cordially and politely to Susan inside the interrogation room, allowing him to get a read on her, as well as getting her to establish a timeline of events. But then it was time for him to turn up the heat and reveal to Susan the big discovery the police had made at her property. The interrogation was about to take a dramatic turn. Susan, no. we found a leg by your house. We found a leg right next to your place. A leg? A human leg next to your place. I think it might be Robert. I uh, don't know. Susan maintained she had no idea how Robert's leg ended up on her property. While asked to speculate, she wondered if Robert may have been attacked by a coyote. But the detective simply wasn't buying it. He continued to push Susan for the truth and offered up another theory. Do you think Robert got into the pig pen and they attacked him? Well, if you found a, if you found a leg in the pig pen, um, I would say that's possible. Would your pigs but, eat a person? Um, a yeah. pig's an animal, they don't know any better. Yeah, no, um, I've heard of pigs eating people all the time, and so like I say, I've joked about it, and then... Now, what Susan and the detective are talking about here, humans being eaten by pigs, 
isn't just a myth taken from gangster movies like Snatch. It's actually something that's well documented. In fact, just two years earlier in the same state, a pig farmer named Terry Vance Garner was eaten by his own hogs. Whether or not he'd been attacked by the pigs or fallen unconscious in the pig pen, perhaps the result of a medical condition or heart attack, remains unknown and the source of much debate. I had a pig that weighed 940 pounds. Yeah. It would barely fit through this door. It was this tall. Yeah. I was not afraid of it at all. Yeah. It could very easily, if it wanted to, kill me and eat me probably within, you know, a day. He could probably eat me by himself. Pigs are like dogs. If you put a bunch of food out for a dog, it will eat all the food. If you put a bunch of food out for a cat, when the cat is full, sure. it quits. Yeah. If you put out a bunch of food for a pig, it will eat it until it can't eat anymore. One day, the 940-pound pig that I told you about, it drank four gallons of milk as fast as I could pour it out of the jug with losing very little of it. It just, uh, it drank four gallons of milk. Yeah, they, they don't know. They're pigs. Yes. They, they just, it's instinct, right? Yes, yes. But we as people know that food for pigs is not a person. Right. And You know that. Right, I know that. I'm, but you know that pigs will eat anything if you pig, give them the opportunity. Opportunity, yes. Right. But even if Robert had become a victim of Susan's pigs, it still didn't explain how his leg ended up not in the pig pen, but closer to Susan's front door. For nearly 30 more minutes, Susan tried as best as she could to feign ignorance on the entire situation. But eventually, the pressure began to mount, and emotionally, she began to break down. And that's why I lost my hair a couple years ago, because the county had come out and uh, said I needed to clean up my place or I was going to get fined $600, and I had no idea where I was going to get $600, so for two nights I didn't sleep. And then immediately after that I started, I started losing my hair. I'm very, very self-conscious. I've always been uh, uh, somewhat of a loner, and now uh, I'm very much more of a loner. I don't go anywhere. Since shortly after this happened, I have not been able to look in a mirror. For the last two years, I have not looked in a mirror. I take a cloth, I wipe my face. I have not been able to take a bath in two years. And then today, I go ahead, and you people won't let me go down and relieve myself, so I'm walking around for an hour and a half and shit in my pants. With just a little more pressure from detectives, Susan began telling a very different story. If my pigs did eat Robert, would you kill my pigs? Well, I don't know. That's something we'd have to look at. Susan, why don't you just tell us what happened? Start at the beginning. For the next minute, Susan appeared to be working up the courage to tell the detectives what she was about to say next. I went down, and uh, he was like half eaten by the pigs. It was early in the morning, and uh, I saw what had happened, and uh, his guts were all over the place. He was, he was still alive. I, I knew he wasn't going to be alive for more than, you know, a few more minutes. I went back up to my house, and I got a gun and shot him in the head. In the scenario Susan laid out, she painted herself as some sort of tragic hero, the perpetrator of a mercy killing, forced to put a man out of his misery as her pigs devoured him alive. I was thinking about calling you people out and telling you what happened. And I hear stories about, you know, a dog bites somebody and they put the dog down and I can't I can't understand why they have to do that unless, you know, it's a dog that's been fighting other people before or something, and I didn't want my animals destroyed. And also, according to her, 
After shooting Robert, she'd left his body with the pigs and went about her daily chores. A couple of days later, she collected his remains and placed them in plastic bags. But there were still some things making detectives doubt Susan's version of events. First, it seemed like an awfully convenient, although potentially plausible explanation. But they couldn't get past the fact that there was no reason for Robert to ever have gone inside the pig pen in the first place. Tending to the pigs wasn't Robert's job, and as far as anyone knew, he'd never once stepped inside the pig enclosure during his entire time there. So how did Robert give them an opportunity for I don't him to know. be in there? I do not know. I do not okay. know. And you, in all the time that Robert had been there, did he ever feed the pigs? To my knowledge, no. Did he ever go out and in the pen? That you to know? my knowledge, no. So you can see how when we listen to what you're saying, I know that, that he, it, I know it, out, I know it, I know it doesn't make sense. It doesn't that. make sense to me. And so when you come out and you see your pigs eating Robert, and he's still alive, yes. For us to hear that, it's not even possible. No one in this, no one here is outside this office, people out there, no one's, no one would believe that. If you take anybody and you put them in a pig pen, even if they've been around pigs, they're going to know that if I start getting attacked by a pig or something, I'm going to try to get out of here. Yes. I'm not going to lay down on the ground and let pigs just eat my stomach. Right. Until I can't move and then have someone come shoot me in the head. Detectives were also starting to learn from other witnesses being interviewed, like former employee Michael Bates, that Susan had a fairly long track record of making off-colored jokes about feeding humans to pigs. You mentioned an incident to us where uh, Susan held you into the pig area. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. I think I thought she was just joking, but she. She's a big woman, don't get me wrong. She's bigger than you are. Uh -huh. She just lifted me up and held me over the pig farm. Because I was looking at her pigs, and she knows I'm scared of them. I'm, I'm, I'm scared of them. I'm, right. I would never get in there. But anyway, I was looking at them, and she held me over and laughed. <laughs> and then she told me, I would like to see how fast my pigs could get rid of a human body. Susan had already made several jokes along the same lines to the detectives when they'd come out to the farm with their warrant. They then told Susan they'd searched every square inch of her property for any more remains. Under pressure, and knowing the police were likely going to find out anyway, Susan Monica then revealed another shocking secret. There is something else that I don't want to say that's just as bad. All you can do is tell me. But I'm it, here it, to listen. But it, it doesn't make sense. That's the thing. Okay. I'm just going to listen. You tell me. Susan then asked for a pen and paper, drawing out a crude map of her property. She marked a spot for the detective. There was another body hidden on her farm. Right there. About three feet down, there's part of another body. Okay. His name is Steve. 59-year-old Stephen Delacino had started working with Susan a year before Robert. And again, Susan Monica spun quite the story. According to Susan, things were going well with Stephen. A few times a month, Stephen would work on Susan's property as a handyman and gardener in exchange for a 12-pack of beer would take his bicycle and he would ride it over to my place and work. I would buy him a half a case of beer mm -hmm. and he would work, he would drink a little beer, he would work, drink a little beer, and he worked all day for a half a case of beer. Yeah. That's that's all he wanted. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, give me $30 so I can buy beer. Right. It was just buy me, buy me some beer and, and he worked. He was a, a, a very good worker. He would not take criticism at all. I, I say this in my stupid sense of humor, that if I gave him a pair of scissors and go, said, go cut the lawn, he would do it. He, he was that type of person. I gave him a rake, and 
one of the reasons that my property looks as good as it does is because of him. Because he came down and spent hundreds of hours simply raking leaves. And he would be upset if he missed a leaf. He would be upset, he would load up the wheelbarrow three times what the wheelbarrow would hold, and then he would go 20 feet and the wheelbarrow would fall over and he'd make a mess. And, you know, he was upset at himself because he didn't do it right, Right. or however you want to put it like that. But then, Susan discovered he'd stolen two guns from her bedroom, and she confronted him about it. I did not think that he would take things from me, but I did know he was a thief. And the the guns turned up missing, Mm -hmm. and it was not a mess. Somebody had gone in there, looked under my pillow, and had taken my pistol, and um, had gone around in the back of the shower, and had taken my rifle. They didn't mess up anything. The only thing that made sense to me was that it might have been Steve. So I confronted him with that. He got all upset, and I had a little twenty-two pistol. Mm-hmm. And uh, he knew right where it was. Stephen became enraged because he thought Susan would report him to police. He'd already served time in prison and was determined to never go back. He apparently knew where my little pistol still was because he reached over and grabbed it. We started to have a little tussle, nothing big to start with, and he says, well, you know, I'm not going back to jail for for stealing your stuff or anybody else's stuff. He he grabbed a little pistol, and he said that, you know, he doesn't want to go back to jail, and he decided he was going to kill himself. So he shot himself in the head. Right there in your home? Right, Right there, right there. Where did he shoot um, himself in the head at? Well, that, that was the whole stupid thing. He he shot himself, and then he ran out. And, but it's, I, didn't, I, I didn't know it at the time. I always thought, you know, if it was a little bitty gun, it, yeah. it wouldn't kill you, but mm-hmm. it would certainly hurt. Yeah. And it's, you know, it was five shots for crying out loud. Yeah. So uh, he, he went out of the room. He went around into... The, uh, that little hallway yeah. and I'm following him yeah. that was when it got even worse and he emptied the gun in his own head I could I could not believe it I could not believe it but it's just a 22 with a little one inch barrel and it was just going boom boom and down what Susan was claiming seemed completely preposterous that Stephen had shot himself in the head five times before finally falling dead somewhere near the barn. And then, somehow, the pigs were able to drag his body into the pig pen? Basically, I did the same thing, which, like I say, it doesn't make any damn sense at all why two people would end up in my pig pen. So what happened with him in the pig pen? Him, I did leave him out there for, for quite a while. Yeah. Until there was practically nothing left. Like how long ago? Uh, I left him there for a couple of weeks. I left him there for a couple of weeks. There was basically practically nothing left. I went around and I was picking up his bones. Mm-hmm. There was no meat on him any longer. Yeah. How long do you think he stayed out here? It, it was a couple of three weeks. Okay. That's a long time. Did they? There was not much left. Okay. Uh, I I went ahead and there were a bunch of bones from um, from pigs and sheep and goats mm-hmm. that were laying all over the place. Mm-hmm. And I decided to get rid of everything. Mm-hmm. So I went ahead and I dug a hole over there. Okay. The detective interviewing Susan was about to be in for a bit of a shock when he learned that police had missed an opportunity to catch her years ago. My good old neighbors, um, I don't know what they were doing, but 
they saw me throwing bones in a hole, mm -hmm. so they called you, yeah. and a couple people came out. Like deputies? Yeah. They came out, and um, they said, somebody saw you throwing bones in a hole, mm -hmm. and I said, right there. Were there any bones of Steve's mixed yes. into them? Yes. Right there that the cops were looking at? Pretty much. Okay. He asked me some kind of question, and uh, I said they were buried about two feet down. I asked him if he wanted a shovel, and he didn't want a shovel, and he left. In her interview, Susan was claiming that both mysterious deaths on her property were justified. One was suicide. The other had been a mercy killing. During the interview, Susan voluntarily agreed to take a polygraph test. This test is about to begin. Please sit still. Are the lights on in this room right now? Yes. Do you intend to answer all questions about Robert's death with the truth? Yes. Not including this investigation, have you ever lied to police or any other authority? No. Did you injure Robert before the pigs began to eat him? No. Do you know of any place on your property where there are body parts from any other person? No. Are you withholding any information concerning how Robert was actually first injured? No. This test is complete. Please sit still until I tell you to. Okay, Susan. For whatever reason, apparently you can't complete a complete chart without moving. I, and so I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that. The little data that I'm getting, uh, we can talk about, but uh, I don't know that we should continue. Well, I was trying to, I was trying to relax, and it was wasn't working. Okay. Well, for the time being, let's take this stuff off here, and then uh, we'll regroup a little bit, maybe. Let's see, where's that? There it is. Of course, detectives weren't buying either of Susan's stories. Susan, been uh, talking to you for the last couple hours. I appreciate you talking to me. Like I said, I've interviewed, I don't know, thousands of people. Mm -hmm. Some of them involved in things, deaths of people and other things. Yes. And I can't help but just my, the fact that I talk to people so much, I start to see things that don't add up sometimes. Try and do the polygraph. I like to have a polygraph opinion. I don't have that with you. I, I realize that. And um, I just, um, it's... But here's, it, 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 I guess it's hard to just sit still. But here's, here's what I do have, okay? There's a little bit of data that I was looking at on there. Not yes. a lot. Not yes. enough for me to make an opinion. But enough to make me concerned uh, about a couple of things, okay? Yeah. Most of the time, people have those kinds of reactions during the test, almost exactly like you, is because they're withholding information at some point. Okay. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, uh, they're scared of the consequences. They don't know where to begin. Uh, they feel like they've done something wrong or they've been um, lying to the police all along and they don't know how to get past that. Well, I just want to tell you that I feel for your situation, but I don't. I also don't believe you've told everything to the detectives today. I think you know some more. That's my opinion. At the conclusion of the marathon, 12 hours long interrogation, Susan was arrested. I am staying here tonight, I guess. The wheels are going in motion now, full speed, yes. and it's not something that can be slowed down. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. The only logical thing to me okay, was, we've already been through this. was that not, somebody I, might have I know that. Might I, know. Have I hear what you're saying. You're not listening to what I'm saying. Okay. But it Hang on a second. It, let me, let okay. me finish, because I'm going to finish with this, okay? Okay. It's important for you to understand that... Yes. It's full speed ahead now. Yes. There is no turning back on right. this. Right. That's why what you told us and what we find are going to go like this yes. tomorrow and yes. mesh. Yes. And if something doesn't fit right, well, no, it's yes. going to be obvious. Yes. So the things that you told us, we'll be able to corroborate all those things and you know, we'll, we'll be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And regardless of what you told us, we will find the truth. I can't see, I can't see how that Can you would, stand up for me? I can't see how that... I'm going to handcuff you. Oh, I'm going to go back to the bar. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll sign two cups, okay? Okay. Uh, 
While it's nearly impossible to discern the true circumstances or motivation behind the deaths of Robert Haney and Stephen Delacino, even the idea that it might be remotely possible for two separate men to somehow innocently end up being fed to Susan's pigs was just ridiculous. And on top of this, the fact that Susan had already demonstrated a near compulsion to make twisted jokes about feeding people to pigs. She'd even done it with the detective interviewing her. The joke became reality. Mm -hmm. But you continued to make that joke even after it became reality. You even said that to me. You said you were going to kill me and feed me your pigs. That actually is just... I, was, I didn't even know what to say. I'm a police officer. I didn't even know what to say. You know what I mean? I, I was like, whoa, did she really just I, say that? Something that should be reiterated that was mentioned earlier, the hogs Susan had been raising on her farm for the past 23 years had been butchered and sold in the community, marketed as free-range organic pork. Over the years Susan had run the farm, she'd employed close to a hundred different men living transient lifestyles. She placed help-wanted posters in the local mission where she knew she could find cheap labor. These were men who were often estranged from their families or suffering from addictions. Men who were particularly vulnerable to someone like Susan Monica. After Susan's first police interrogation, she told detectives exactly where they'd be able to find the rest of both Robert and Stephen's remains. And the very next day, authorities found them exactly where she'd said. But of course, this only made investigators begin to wonder if there might even be more victims buried on Susan's farm. Fears that were compounded when investigators searched her property and discovered a large pile of used men's shoes. When confronted about the possibility, Susan became hostile, vehemently denying that anyone else had died on her property. When she was informed police were going to dig up her entire farm, she became downright enraged. Later, Susan made a shocking statement to police when she told them there were another 17 bodies buried on her farm. But after an entire month of searching and digging, they never found any more human remains. It's likely Susan's claims about more bodies were nothing more than an elaborate hoax to give police the runaround as some sort of revenge. In 2015, the trial of Susan Monica would turn out to be as erratic and outlandish as her interrogation, mostly because Susan Monica demanded to represent herself. In addition to the unusual request, Susan's entire appearance had dramatically transformed during her time behind bars. Gone was the image of the gruff pig farmer. Instead, Susan showed up to court wearing makeup elegant eyeglasses, skirts, blouses, jewelry, and wigs with a trendy cut. But while her appearance had changed, her volatile personality hadn't. Over the course of the trial, she was prone to outbursts, at one point even asking the Haney family to leave, which of course she had no power to do. On day three of the trial, Susan Monica appeared especially gleeful, to be on the opposite side of things when she cross-examined her own interrogator, Detective Henderson. Unsurprisingly, Susan's most pressing question to Detective Henderson had to do with her pigs. When photos were shown of her property, dug up and turned over in search of the 17 other bodies, Susan snickered at the prank she'd pulled on them. It seemed to please her that she'd sent police out on a wild goose chase. At trial, her story about the murder of Stephen Delacino had evolved as well. No longer was she sticking with the impossible claims he'd shot himself five times. Now she was claiming self-defense. In this version, Stephen had attacked her, so violently in fact, that one of her breast implants had collapsed during the altercation. So she had no choice, she claimed, but to shoot him. 
Of course, there was no evidence beyond her own testimony to support her claim. And when it came to Robert's murder, a forensic anthropologist offered testimony that ran directly counter to Susan's claims of an accidental death and mercy killing. Instead, he testified that an examination of Robert's legs proved they'd been chopped off with an axe. This suggested that rather than passively letting the pigs eat his body, Susan Monica prepared him, like a butcher would, and fed him to her pigs. In the end, it took the jury only an hour to sentence Susan Monica to life in prison for the murders of both Robert and Stephen. Robert Haney's sister spoke at Susan's sentencing hearing. Please give my family justice. Don't ever let her out. Please. At no point throughout the entire investigation, interrogation, and trial did Susan Monica ever demonstrate an ounce of remorse for what she'd done. In jail, she callously signed a birthday card for another inmate as the sweetest murderer. Andrew Dodge gave us his own impressions of Susan Monica after interviewing her. I wasn't sure what to expect. I knew a little bit about her case and I was curious to learn more. What I expected versus what I got was way different. She seemed very nice, sweet, and even convincing when it came to the crimes. One being self-defense and the other being a very unfortunate incident of a man dying in a pig pen all on his own. Now I thought to myself, one would have to be the luckiest of people to get off on two murder charges with their remains being eaten by their pigs, or two, this person was a cold-blooded killer like the pig farmer in Canada, Robert Picton, killing innocent people just to satisfy whatever it is that they crave like many serial killers do. I found it odd when Susan became upset when Steve wanted to move to Florida, which could have possibly triggered her to where she wanted to keep him there forever like many killers have done with their victims. I personally don't believe that any of it had any sexual components related to it, but that's just my opinion. What did shock me was her views on the LGBTQ community. She said something to the effect of, stay away from the pride parades if you don't want to get beat up, which threw me for a loop as I was talking to a transgender woman. Another interesting point that I picked up on was that she said between 1963 and 1965, she was at school and claims the other school children picked up on who she really was. When she got out of high school, she joined the Navy and was convinced that it would make a man out of her. After three years and seven months in the service, she got an honorable discharge in San Diego, California. Susan said she was in a waiting room looking at a magazine about Christine Jorgensen, who I didn't know until Susan told me is actually known as the first transgender woman to have the reassignment surgery. She is known as a gender reassignment pioneer. Susan read the article and then sought out the doctor after she got home in San Francisco. After an hour into the first visit with the doctor, Susan started receiving hormones. What I also found interesting was that her dad didn't approve of the surgery, but still contributed $4,000 towards it, after which a few years she came up with all the money and was able to get the surgery done. I also found it odd and random that she had been working in Compton, California, presumably in the 80s and 90s, as a civil engineer, and she also claims that she's owed about $3 million by the state of Oregon for her wrongful conviction. The judge presiding over the case called Susan a cold-blooded murderer who valued her pigs over humans. And now, she'll spend the rest of her life behind bars. In the end, her own worst fears were realized when her beloved pigs were eventually euthanized. There's no way anyone will ever know the full truth about what happened to Robert and Stephen out in the rural range on Susan Monica's farm because the only person who knows the truth is maintaining her claims of innocence, regardless of how absurd those claims clearly are. But what's not in doubt is that two families had lost their loved ones, two fathers taken away from their children in cold blood. And while these men lived transient lifestyles, separated from their families, sometimes for long periods of time, Susan Monica robbed them all of any chance of future reunions. I want to give a huge thank you to Andrew Dodge for helping us with this episode. He's got a couple of great podcasts, Unforbidden Truth and Murderabilia Exposed, 
I personally have found some of the interviews on Unforbidden Truth really fascinating. You really should check him out. And here's Andrew from Unforbidden Truth. My name is Andrew Dodge. I've spent a little over a decade now researching psychology, corresponding and visiting with convicted murderers and criminals alike. I'm not an expert in the field and will never claim to be. Unforbidden Truth will bring you exclusive interviews with convicted murderers, survivors of violent crime, professionals in the law enforcement and mental health field, and much more related to the macabre world of true crime. Head on over to www.unforbiddentruthpodcast.com to join me on a one-of-a-kind true crime experience. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>